Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. I wish I had a crisper voice like you do. Oh, you know, you sound good. You sound amazing. Uh, I sound like a foghorn. <laughs> you sound good. Not you sound hardly, like man. you have a yeah. rich, crisp voice. That that that's the magic of technology. So what I did was I bought a really good microphone and then I turned all the dials just right so that I sound sexy. Oh wow. Yeah, that's how I did it. So okay, you got you got to teach me how to do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm in luck because I've been recording, so we're gonna have that one in the podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but hey, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, well, listen, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, so if I don't say it all right, at least the picture will say it. That's <laughs> true, right? Yeah. So hey, Max, I've been dying to interview you. Since I started this, I don't know if you know, but I've been doing this about a year and a half. And uh, no, I didn't know. Yeah. And I've been dying to interview because you're a legend. So when I was in college, it was artists like you and Burton Silverman that were the people we all looked up to, the people that were like, okay, these guys are doing some amazing art. And you were a huge inspiration. And, uh, you know, I was going to a kind of a modernist school. So to see guys like you doing what you were doing made me personally realize that that was possible. And this was 25 years ago, almost. So thank you for that. I'll just start with that, for that positive influence and uh, giving artists in my generation hope. And it's crazy how the art world has just exploded. Realism has just exploded. And you guys were at the forefront of that. Thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you. tell me a little bit about that. Tell me, I want to know how you ended up getting into realism when realism was so not cool. And it was, <laughs> it was just a time because about when did you start getting into art to put it in perspective? Well, I started when I was two. Okay. I was two years old. And I walked into my father's studio and uh, I saw the way he painted. So I took a brush and I started to paint over one of his finished portraits. So that's when he gave me my first lesson. What was that, a spanking? And that was a spanking. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, man, I stole but, a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> no. But uh, but I didn't learn my lesson because I continue to be a, want to be an artist. So you see, and so the result is you keep get you keep getting spankings throughout your career. <laughs> yeah, ain't that the truth? Unless you're lucky and you know and you know you're doing million dollar portraits and you're happy with it and so on. 
So to put in perspective for the audience that's listening, you're 91 years old. So no, I'm 92. You're 92. 92. 92. Don't, don't take that half a year off. <laughs> so you were born in what? Is that 31? Uh, nine, 1931. Yeah. 31. So yeah. if you were and two you know, years you know old, that, yeah. At two years old, you're you're in 1933. Picasso right. is a big hit at this point. I mean, you're not. Yeah. This is a different time. How did you and how'd your father, frankly, how'd your father stay in realism? I mean, what kind of work was he well, doing? Well, I'll tell you about him. Uh, and of course, when we show the paintings, you know, you'll I, I can elaborate. Well, we can more. show them anytime you want. If you want to show your All dad's right. work, should I pull up some of your dad's work? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the timing is totally different than I would have assumed. Oh, okay. No, but let's just do okay. it just, just off the cuff here. Let's, no, it's fine. That's fine. Let's, uh, it's fine. I'm going to pull it up. So no, here, let, let it, let it come out naturally in a natural conversation. Yeah. So here is a portrait okay. from your dad right here. So that's a portrait. That's a self portrait he painted. So when I was born, he painted that he was happy, you know, when I was born. So he painted this before I ruined his portrait. Holy moly, he's uh, good. So that's why he's smiling. And of course, he painted it from life. And uh, fortunately, you know, he when he went to school, the people in the school could draw and paint uh, very well. Not like when you and I went to college hmm. and the people couldn't paint and draw very well or skillfully. Skill was a dirty word, if you might remember. Oh, yeah. So is, they, is they wanted. Yeah. Is he part of that golden age of illustration? Is that his generation? Well, he was around that time. He came to this country from Ukraine in uh, 1912. And he wanted to be an artist, but uh, his father you know, said, that's not a good job for a man to have because hmm. you can't make a living. But he really wanted to be an artist. So when he came to this country, he was already an adult. So in 1918, he, uh, he, he started uh, taking classes at the National Academy of Design. And... Uh, that's when they were in Manhattan, up across the street from St. John's Cathedral on 110th Street. You know, when I was around, I only knew of the National Academy on 89th Fifth Avenue. But that's when, you know, he was there. So they were drawing first cast drawings. And then they were drawing from life. And then they were painting from life. And he got many awards because he was very good. Yeah, he's skillful. incredible. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> uh, he, in fact, uh, received, when he, when he ended the school and after four years, he received a two-year scholarship or fellowship to study in Berlin and Paris. Wow. Painting. Uh, and that's because he was just very talented, very good. He was not a good politician in terms of being able to um, schmooze. 
talk, talk yeah, schmo well, not schmooze, but talk yourself into getting good positions. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, work things out with galleries and so on. But he was just a good artist. Uh, one of his uh, classmates was Raphael Sawyer. Now, Raphael Sawyer's uh, paintings, I don't think, were drawn that skillfully or even painted that skillfully. But Raphael Sawyer was an influence on me hmm. because of his his um, social outlook. Did you put? Did you give me a picture of one of his paintings? Of my of Raphael Sawyer. Sawyer, yeah. No, uh, I, don't, I don't see one here. I'm because I'm kind of no, curious. Right. Let's uh, no, let's yeah. look him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I'm no, not I, familiar. Uh, yeah, I I was gonna put down people who influenced me. How do you spell that? One. How do you spell that? S O Y E R. Is this him right here? That's him. Yeah, yeah, he was a short guy, even shorter than me. Is this, so this is yeah, I think okay. that's his that's his parents. Okay. And uh, it was what was interesting is that I, I was amazed that he became rather famous and known, and yet his drawing was not what you expected from the academy. Right. But I felt he was very astute in terms of his human awareness of things as he expressed in his paintings. And that's what influenced me a lot. You know, I guess at that time there were people called social realists. Mm -hmm. And he was one of them. It was sort of like a, a, an outgrowth of the Ashcan School. In fact, one of the Ashcan School painters was my father's teacher in drawing in the, in the academy, uh, what was his name? Uh, you know, he's he's uh, gee. he's the one who said, "Paint what you see, not what you know." I've heard that from so many people. I don't know who was the original yeah. <laughs> author of that. Yeah, hell, here I think I have it. Yeah, Charles Hawthorne. Oh, Hawthorne. Yeah, Charles Hawthorne. He was, he's the one who said that. Okay. So he was his teacher. Uh, that was in drawing. In painting, his teacher was Ivan Olinsky. I never saw the, the, much of their work. I've seen some of their work. Olinsky had a portrait in, the, um, in that uh, museum in Ohio where I have some paintings. Uh, you know, when you get 92, you forget names. Is that the museum Terrible. where we did Hard Times? Do you remember Hard Times from 2008? Could be. Yeah. Could I can't be. remember the name of it either, um, so. Oh, my goodness. It's in Southern Ohio. Okay. And um, Butler, Butler Institute yes, of American that is where, Art. That is where we had yeah. the Hard Times. Right. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah. Well, they have they have uh, three of my paintings that are in their collection, and uh, some of them I'll be showing you, you know, and talking about them. Great. But uh, but anyhow, um, so my father was you know a very important influence.
because when I went to school, like you did, even though I was younger, the the craze was for modern art of one kind or another. Also, um, the 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 kind of art that was in vogue was mainly abstract expressionism mm -hmm. at that time, and uh, and even when people worked realistically or tried to, they were not really very good. Mm. You know, so that's why I feel I was fortunate to have my father in my camp. You mentioned Bert Silverman before. Yeah. And uh, I had heard about Bert Silverman and Harvey Dinnerstein mm -hmm. because, uh, because uh, they were very friendly with the Hospital Workers Union, and they had done paintings for them. And I did also, you know, my painting called Union Meeting is in that uh, in that collection at hmm. the hospital. And isn't but Bert about your age, Bert and Silverman? Aren't you guys both in you? you no, know, both of them are, are older. Well, Harvey died about yeah, almost did. a year ago. Yeah. But uh, Bert is still around. Bert is 96. Okay. Yeah, he's older. In fact, we even all went to the same high school. We went to the High School of Music and Art. You're kidding me. And, uh, except that when I went into the school, they graduated. Right. They're four years older. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then we all came from Brooklyn. But somehow they, they, uh, they changed their accent. They, they, I don't know if they ever spoke Brooklynese like I do. I guess I learned more <laughs> of my work. Language in it's the all who you hang out with. <laughs> so but, uh, I have a question. The, I have a question yeah. for you. Why? Why do you suppose the three of you? Because I can't think of a non-Jewish great painter of your generation in New York coming out of New York City. Oh, have you ever thought well, about Sawyer that? Was, Sawyer was Jewish. <laughs> yeah. What's? Have you ever thought much about uh -huh. that? Well, I mean, is it something yeah. about the culture at the time or? Or is it just I, I I don't know, but I think it was another factor that attracted me to them, and that is that their uh, their politics or their yeah. attitude was very very progressive. I was very impressed with them, yeah, and they went to the south to join the bus boycott by Martin L that Martin Luther King conducted mm -hmm. you know I've been here for two white Jews to travel to, uh, what is it, Birmingham, Alabama, which was dangerous for white Jews, <laughs> Jews. You know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism then. Uh, and uh, I was impressed that they had the guts, you know, to do this, knowing that it could be dangerous. Hmm. Wow. You know, to join, to join that boycott, uh, you know, so that, uh, Black people could ride a bus like everybody else. And uh, and besides, they were part of this uh, gallery, the Davis Gallery. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of it. I think so. Where they were trying, they were trying to promote realism. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other people there was my neighbor at one time when I lived in the city, um, Schickler, Aaron Schickler. Well, He's the one who painted the portrait of John F. Kennedy 
that's in the White House. Okay. You know, the one where he's got his arms folded and his head is down. Yeah, I'm not well, sure anyhow, I do know it's, that uh, one. It's, it's, pretty, it's actually in yeah. the White House? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to look that yeah, one he up. Was, he, was a good, he was a good painter. He was a good painter. Hmm. But anyhow, uh, you know, I, well, I wasn't going to speak of them so soon, but I... One <laughs> I'm of the throwing you way I off. Sorry, to, Max. I know, fine. It's fine. One of the things that I wanted to highlight was that uh, that as I was developing as an artist, outside of my father's help, I felt that the art schools and the colleges didn't allow for freedom of expression. That's ironic. People keep talk, yeah, people keep talking about it. And the <laughs> reason I say it is because they kept acting as if, oh, that, the realism is art of the past. Right. And therefore, why would you want to do that? And if you want to paint realistically, go ahead. But you see, they didn't provide us with a serious program of drawing and painting from life. Right. And that's why later on, and I'll show you in the paintings also, when I was teaching at the High School of Art and Design. I know. I want to talk about this because uh, I've heard of, uh, I, I, I interviewed Ricky Mojica. And he talked all about his experience with you before high school started. Right. Regularly right. painting with you and, yeah. and Stephen Assail. Yeah, I was going to show his work. In yeah. fact, one of the pieces that I sent you. Yeah, let's look at that. It was quick. not on my website. And it's a painting that he did when he was 17 years old. Yeah, he showed this actually when I interviewed him. It's mind blowing. Right. It and is. he said he did for it all from life. Year old, for a 17 year old kid. Because mm -hmm. we all work from life then. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was just amazing. And also, you know, his background was such that he came from a poor neighborhood. You know, he was in, on the west side of Manhattan in the 90s. And uh, anyhow, he was able to really do well. And he was very smart. Yeah. Academically as well as artistically. So in this painting you're showing, that's... Um, he painted uh, a life in uh, in, in a, day, a day of the in a life uh, at the art at the at art and design. Yeah, isn't this he you right he here? Picked, yeah, he picked the art teacher. Yeah, so that's me <laughs> yeah. with the high forehead, the glasses. Yeah, and the mustache. that sweet beard. Right, and it's a. <laughs> No, I didn't have a beard then, just a mustache. Well, it looks like a mustache and sideburns. Okay, yeah, I see it. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, but he got a pretty good likeness. Got a good likeness of everybody. And he had everybody sitting there posing, you know, like we did, because I was also doing multi-figure compositions. So, you know, I'm assuming that I, but also old masters were an influence in his life. So, you know, and so, but he did that very well. What motivated you to do this? Because I assume the way he described it is, as I'd said earlier, it was before high school even started. You, they would come early in the morning and you'd be there and you'd set up a live model because the high school didn't provide these resources. So I'm assuming you didn't get paid for this extra right. time. So right. what was it, what motivated you to do this, to help these young artists? Well, what motivated us, first of all, we didn't have this opportunity 
when yeah. we were going through high school. Even though I went through music and art high school, that was specializing in art. But they too were very more modern oriented. Yeah. And uh, we, and then when I went to college, it was even worse. And yeah. We didn't have that opportunity. So I felt uh, that it would be uh, wonderful to give students today, or at that time, this opportunity, you know, to draw and paint from life. Hmm. Now, that was not part of the curriculum. So, but they allowed us to use our, our schoolroom, you know, for that purpose. So, Ricky and a bunch of others like Steve would come in early in the morning, 6.30, and paint until 8.30, and then go to their regular classes that the school had on their curriculum. Hmm. And uh, the students also did not get marks. Now, in, you know, when your... students go to school, yeah. they would usually get marks as an incentive, just like teachers would get money as an incentive. Right. But here there was something higher than that. And that was a serious interest in being a skillful artist who could also paint realism. You know, mm -hmm. that was very important. So you had to have a commitment. You can think of it a little bit like uh, a preacher in a way. You know, I'm assuming that preachers or people who do things for the good of mankind, are doing it for the good of mankind, not just for the salary. Right. You see the kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. In fact, some teachers even said to me and my friend Greeny, uh, they said, you're not even get, getting paid for this. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, you got to be crazy. And then they would say, what are you telling them about this? They got to make a living. Yeah. You know, teaching the kind of skills they need in commercial art and so on and so forth. But sometimes there's a higher calling, you know. Now, I'm not religious. I'm actually an atheist. But I still feel this higher calling, you know, it's for humanity. And and that's why I paint a lot of the paintings that I paint. Mm. And I feel that to a degree... They, even though they were a little different, Harvey Dynastine and Bert Silverman had similar thoughts. Yeah. And we were all, you know, Jewish, traditionally, you know. Of course, even though you may not be religious, you still have, have that... Um, um, DNA? Tradition. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, tra tradition. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, is a part of your life. It's sort of cultural in a way. Yeah. So I'm just making making that point, you know, that that uh, doing art, uh, you know, for 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 a humanistic reason, is of value. It's not just doing it for 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 making money. Of course, we all want to make a living, and as you know. In addition to teaching, which I stopped in high school in 1982, and I started doing illustration, and I made more money doing that 
and I did my own art that I was really serious and interested in. But that illustration was not exactly themes that I would normally do. You know, they were right. kind of superficial. Um, do you want to pull some of that you know, up? Sort of, yeah, sort of a glamorous Hollywood uh, things. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is... Um, I like that. Okay. This so is that's your website, illustration. GinsburgIllustration.com. That's and right. you did romance novels. I did romance novels. Now, there's some good also to say about it, but there's also, I wouldn't say bad, but superficiality, or um, there's also, you know, a subject matter that is handled uh, lightly or trite. You know what I mean? In other words, it's like, a, you know, a romantic movie, but it's not a serious movie, you might say. Right, right. And I felt that my art that I was doing was more concerned with the plight of mankind, although you do have movies like that, too. Well, you know what? They're beautifully so, done, boy, though. You, <laughs> I mean... Now, this, well, this is one section that I was going to ask you to pull up, like this piece over here. You see, now, if you're talking about this, I see we're going to go by some other agenda. <laughs> This is not what I had planned, but this is fine. It's very natural, <laughs> you know, and you're, you're a good questioner. So you bring it out. Well, I'm very curious about you and your career. So it's easy. Yeah. Okay. Well, over here, uh, you know, the, the art director gives you a theme, mm -hmm. you know, what the book is about. You never, you know, I, I never read the books, so it didn't even matter. Right. But they give you an idea. Well, this is supposed to be, Mountains, uh, you know, in some part of America, you know, the guy has dark hair and the girl has blonde hair. And of course, they will, they, uh, you assume, unless they tell you otherwise, that they're, uh, you know, uh, white Anglo Saxon uh, type of people, mm -hmm. what many of us call the Americans. You don't think of Native Americans like that. Right. Right. I mean, it's just the ridiculousness of it. But but the point is that it's still skillfully done. Oh, it's incredible. And I look at the old masters for a certain amount of influence in this, even if they're Orientalists or they're uh, um, portraits, portrait artists of the 19th and 20th century. You know, there's a lot that I learn from them in the way things are handled. There's an yeah. idealization. You kind of know what goes on, you know, in terms of their look. They have to be handsome and, uh, you know, very presentable and so on and so forth. You also make the backgrounds so it's colorful, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and you do all the uh, things yeah, you're making that eye are candy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. But I mean, there is a beauty in that too. There is. There's even more. And for me, there was also even a tenderness in the way people might relate to each other. Mm -hmm. That's a part of it. So in doing these, we would do photo shoots like Norman Rockwell did. And there were also uh, other artists who used photography mm -hmm. at times like Sargent. But, uh, 
we would do photo shoots and it's like in a movie, you'd sit there like a director and you tell them to put on certain kinds of costumes of the time period or the geographic area. And, uh, and, and you would give them an uh, idea of the feelings that you want expressed. And then the model comes out with it. Hmm. So when you take a lot of photographs and then you pick a few. You do some layouts, the art director picks one, and then you go ahead and paint it. Now, most of these were painted on illustration board. Some were on canvas at first, but it didn't matter. Is it just an illustration board or are you just going right on the yeah. board? Okay. Yeah, we would get the, we'd get the board. They're usually they're on um, 30 by 40 sizes or 20 by 30. And uh, we would uh, 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 staple and tape the board to a stretcher. Oh, you would? A wooden stretcher. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because if you gesso it, it would curl. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. See, so then also you can go right at it with the paint. Mm -hmm. And just as Norman Rockwell did and many others, we would then trace the images from the photographs. To save time. To save time. And for many, to get the right drawing and proportions. Right. But you I've know, seen you paint. You would sometimes stray. What? I've seen you paint, though. You know how to draw. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something in that, too. And well, I'll come to that later, because my drawing in, you know, in there is more a la prima. See, here in tracing, we would use a pencil. Right. And just get the, the necessary outlines so that then you knew where the head was, the size, the position, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the photograph and you copy the forms. Right. So yeah. you said you were influenced by the old masters, but when I look at this work, it feels more contemporary in, in the paint approach, like a wet-into-wet post-impressionist well, kind of approach. Well, that, that's a little bit like Sargent. Yeah. There were other, other uh, I would say, I would say the American Impressionists. Okay, yeah. Uh, were, were, you know, also were better draftsmen, let's say, than the French. Right. Yeah, so you're not looking at Rubens and Rembrandt and that sort of thing. It's more the... Well, no, yes, I was looking at Rubens and Rembrandt. Okay. But for, at different times right. and for different purposes. See, for something like this, I wouldn't. I wouldn't look at uh, at uh, Rembrandt. I might observe some Rubens, yeah, and some other old masters, and get some ideas. Okay, you know, and uh, sometimes uh, there were some where I literally got ideas. Who is this uh, uh, Regency painter Fragonard? Mm -hmm. You know, he's a French painter in the 18th century. And there's a painting he did of a woman looking very beautiful and lounging on a swing and she's swinging and the suitor is on the ground, you know, yearning for her love. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that painting. I haven't. So there was one illustration I did where I had a girl <laughs> sitting on a swing and I think she even had a pink dress on. And the uh, guy behind her pushing. It might be in one of these. Hmm. Not sure. 
Would it be under yeah, fiction? I've got fiction here. Yeah, it would be it would be under in this category if it's here. Unless yeah, it doesn't I doesn't look put like it it's in. here. No. Now Maybe this this section is impressive. Some of these are really complex. Yeah, well this one is. Yeah. See over here I use the three models. And uh, uh two men and one woman. But then, you know, the publishing houses uh, didn't want to pay that much for models. So we'd use the models and they would take different poses for different people. You see, so you can yep. tell, you know, which man I repeated two, two or three times and which one I repeated for the other guys. Yeah. And the one woman here. was the other people. Change the hair here. a little bit and so on. Yeah. Yeah, but you never notice. I do the same thing in my biblical work and no one ever notices it until I point it out because they're looking at the oh. story. They're not looking at the... Yeah, right. Of course. Characters and now, now also, also, I looked at Sergeant a lot of this. Mm -hmm. You know the way he handled things, because for one thing, you know Sergeant dealt with these kind of upper class people, mm -hmm. and uh, also with uh, this kind of a background. At times, you know. So I'd look at, for example, at the way the tones on the wall is are. Yeah. And comparison to the light on the skin of the people, you know, so that they would project light against the background. Well, those are issues that I'm sure you've come across in your own paintings. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And then, so I'm just yeah. going to flip through a couple of these. I just want to give people a taste of yeah. everything. Now you see done. the one up there, the two, two black girls in the subway? Yeah. Next. Uh, yeah. That one. You see, now that one was one one of the first illustrations I did. Really, the art director the art director saw my fine art. This was done in 1981. I started doing illustration around this time. So he saw my fine art. So he figured there was a book written by uh, a black author about young black women in Harlem. Wait a minute, just to That's be clear, you, you didn't even start illustrating until you were 50? Yeah, 49, yeah. So you taught before that and then and then moved into illustration? Uh, yeah, yeah, I taught from 19... Officially, I taught from 1960 to 1982. Okay. But I started doing illustration because a classmate of mine from high school who became an art director, saw my painting in the Society of Illustrators. Hmm. I happened to put a painting in there. And he remembered my name, you know, because I was the same age. He was in my class. I mean, he used to envy me as, the, as an artist, you know, but he had other abilities, but enough to get into the school. But anyhow, uh, he saw my painting and asked me if I would want to do uh, illustrations. I wasn't sure, but I said, you know, okay. And uh, and I and I guess um, uh, I uh, uh, I I was sold on yeah. the idea because uh, it was a chance to make a good income, you know, uh, raising a family and so on. Although as a teacher, it wasn't bad, but illustration was you made four times as much money. Wow. They paid, no, they paid well. 
And then I was busy all the time doing this. You know, just you just I, took I, off I still, after you I, did this. It I just still, took off. I still did. For, I still did my fine my fine art, but I didn't have that much time for it. But the interesting thing is that before I did this, I was working only from life. And, uh, you know, people, uh, some artists would use photographs at times. And if they heard a knock on the door, they would hide the photographs <laughs> because they didn't, they didn't want to yeah. be seen. It, it made you look like you couldn't draw well enough, you know. But um, anyhow, this is something that... Uh, that I started to do. But before that, I was doing the, uh, you know, my fine art. I was teaching at Art and Design. And in addition to my father's help, by teaching at Art and Design, especially in that morning group, I developed my own skills. So I became a better painter, both in my fine art and the illustration work. Yeah. I think there were many people who tried doing the illustration work, even from a photograph, but the work looked crude and stiff. Mm -hmm. Didn't look as good. Mm -hmm. You know, painting from life was a, was a real good factor. In fact, you know, Norman Rockwell studied at the Art Students League. No. And his earlier work was some very nice, you know, beautiful painting. His later work became very tight. Hmm. No kidding. So, yeah. oh, well, that's one benefit you got then from teaching, even though that's not why you went into it. You went into it to help young students. But... Yeah, well, I, I had a, I had a, when I, when I first got out of the army, I was drafted in 1953 mm -hmm. and I got out in 55. So I had to get a job to make a living. So I did commercial art, you know, which was more paste ups and mechanicals and little illustrations of watercolor. Uh, but after a few years, I decided I want to have more time to paint. So I assumed instead of a nine to five job, if I worked as a teacher, I would teach fewer hours, have the summers off, uh, the uh, winter vacations, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and so on, you know, so that I'd have more time to paint. So that's why, uh, that's one of the reasons that I, I did it. Besides, as a teacher, I felt you're reaching a lot of students, you know, and I felt, I, you know, I had my, my attitude, which you can call either, you know, political or humanistic. But my attitude was that I wanted to give to students things that, for example, I was deprived of in high school and college. Yeah. I shouldn't speak this way because, you know, I had opportunities, right? I was accepted into the high school. I got a scholarship to the college. But still, I feel I wanted to give what I think they didn't offer. Right. Well, plus you had a, your dad was a masterful painter himself. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. So who else did you have in that class, that early morning class? that we might know. I mean, I know about Ricky, I know about Stephen Asale. Yeah. Isn't yeah. there's another artist and I he'll have to forgive me. He's in he's well, in the Windsor, guy... New York right now. Um, oh, Garen. Garen Baker. Is it Garen Baker? Yeah, he was yeah. he's good. 
He is he's good. good. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. where I'm from. He, his home is walking distance from where, from the home I grew up in. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 He, he does some beautiful work now. He did murals for a while. Mm -hmm. He was very good at it. Yeah. So he's very painterly. You must have some pride in that. I mean, you've, you've oh, sure. created some rock stars. <laughs> Yeah. No, I do. I do. I do. Yeah. We just interviewed Nicholas Yoribi. Who's... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but he, he was in my class when I taught at SVA. Well, that's the thing, though. I wanted to talk about that. So you didn't quit teaching altogether. You went to illustration, but then eventually you started oh, teaching yes. again in the college, at the college level. Yes, yes. Uh, when I uh, When I went to SVA, it was after I started doing illustration. Okay. After I left art and design, and uh, I uh, what happened? What happened there was uh, they they saw the the people there saw my illustrations, so they asked me if I would teach there. So this was a few years after I started illustrating, and um, uh, so I I went I department. The fine art department was primarily abstract. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but while I was there, Nicholas, you know, was in my class and uh, he was wonderful, very outgoing guy, very talented, uh, very exuberant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he has that kind of personality. Yeah. And uh, I was very, I was very impressed by him. Yeah. Yeah. I say that. Yeah. Yeah. You've you've definitely but, been but, kind and, of the but godfather. That, but that was in the that was later in the eighties. Right. Yeah. No, he would he would have been in ninety. He said ninety six ish. He was there. So oh, later so in the eighties is when you started yeah. teaching, though. I started teaching there in eighty four. Okay. And I stopped in two thousand. Okay. And the reason I stopped is because I decided, along with my feeling before, that I felt I wanted to give students more of an opportunity to develop their realist skills. Now, Steve Assel was teaching there also. So I spoke to Steve, he spoke to me, and we agreed it would be good to have a special class where people volunteered. So then we would give them a little more of a stronger uh, background, you know, to develop their realist skills in painting and drawing. So we went to the dean of the school to ask him if this was possible. You know, we thought th this would enhance the school. They would have a stronger, stronger art to show. I mean, not exactly that their work was weak, but this would be an additional thing. Mm -hmm. And that Dean turned it down. Yeah. Apparently, you know, if you know the illustration field, there's a lot of shtick that takes place. What do you mean? In fact, there's a lot of shtick in fine art too. What do you mean? Just politics you know? in the departments? You know what I mean by shtick? No, no I not don't. Not just politics. Yeah. How do you decide if something is creative? Are you asking me? You do. Well, you know, it's a it's a it's okay. a rhetorical question. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, it's um, you know, it's got to be different. 
It's mm-hmm. got to be, quote, creative. So how do you determine that? Very often it's just bad drawing. <laughs> Sometimes you throw garbage on a wall. Right. Right? I mean, you know the stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So, so that's the thing. But if you just have a sincere program of working realistically and skillfully, that should do it. You know, oh, sure. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you don't deal with ideas and expression. But you just don't have to harp on this uh, this other thing that I call shtick, mm. which some people say is creativity. Mm-hmm. OK, so that's so, what you mean by shtick. So, OK, so, right. So as a result, as a result, the dean turned us down. So mm. I felt. I felt I don't I don't need to stay here, <laughs> you know. So I I left them because I, I had my illustration work. Did you know, Stephen Asale stick around, or he leave as well? He stuck around for a while, largely because he needed the the health insurance. Right. And he's also in some other school now, new school. Okay. Not new school. The um, I forgot what they call it. New 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 York Academy. Right. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, he stuck around, you know, mainly for that. But um, I, I just, I just walked out. And besides, uh, at, at in two thousand one, I felt. I think I had enough of illustration. Also, really, I wanted to do my. I wanted to do my fine art. So you went twenty solid years, though. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I felt that I have this commitment to do my fine art, and that's what I started to do. But a few years later, what was it like around 2007 or so, uh, I was at the league, and I began teaching there. Hmm. But, you know, the pay, the pay in all these places was nothing compared to what you get when you were doing illustration. Right. Right. But what about your, um, what about your fine art? How does it do? My guess is it's a little tough to sell because it is pretty politically charged sometimes. Is that, am I wrong? I think, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. If I, if I do paintings that are tragedy, uh, people don't like to hang tragedy on their wall. Yeah. They, They might hang a crucifixion. If they're religious, right. Think a painting that deals with the same subject, but in today's terms, right? Yeah. So, and and then and then you know, part of my thing when I go around, see if we can look at some of the paintings I've done. Yeah, let's do it. I'd show you what I'm talking about. So, I mean, that's of course uh, more real. Okay, now this one, for example. This isn't exactly tragedy. This is tragedy. Let me let me uh, go. That's just Th- a that's slide tragedy. Show. Okay. So let's go. Which one we did you want to go to? All right. Well, the one you showed there, War Pieta, where the and that's not uh, the, on this in the page. first the first section the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's uh, that's it. Where the arrow is. Yeah, that's heavy. Okay. Now here I was influenced 
first of all, by war. I did this during the the war in in Iraq. Mm. And I felt that this was wrong. Not just that it was wrong that it was war, but also the whole idea was wrong. A bunch of Saudi Arabians bombed the Trade Center. So they so they start a war in, in Iraq. <laughs> they send American troops to Iraq. It's crazy. But you see, no matter what it is, people are victims. And, you know, and that's the horrible thing about war. So here, even this, though, even, even though I disagree with the American uh, foreign policy, I feel that this soldier is an American soldier and he's a victim. Yeah, he didn't make the decision. He, he didn't yeah. choose. That's right. right. He, he chose to join the decision. army, but he didn't choose to go to war. Yeah. Or he might have been drafted. Right. Could have been a lot of different things. Like I was drafted. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you become a victim, no matter what end of the gun you're at. Now, in doing this, I did a photo shoot. And uh, the woman I used is my daughter. No kidding. She happened to be 38 at the time, and she was rather attractive and looked like the images of the Madonna. She's beautiful. You know, like Michelangelo's Madonna. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just got a guy who was a student at the School of Visual Arts uh, and put on some torn fatigues so and had them pose like this. But in order to get her screaming, I did a photo shoot because I felt it'd be hard for her to hold the pose. Right. Screaming like that. So I did a photo shoot and... Uh, and then, and then I began to, uh, you know, paint, paint it. Now, in doing the photo shoot, that was something I learned from the illustration world about the photo shoots. See, now I may have changed the things here and there, you know, in like it's not just a straight tracing, but mm -hmm. the point is that there are changes if necessary. Otherwise, you try and arrange the material and everything the way you want it just like you would want in your, in your expression. So I put a shawl on her because after all, Madonna was a, like a Middle Eastern woman. I'm assuming, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming that the, uh, the soldier, well, Christ, uh, they haven't usually is blonde, but somehow I don't think so in that, mm -hmm. in that geographic area. But it doesn't matter. Here is just an American soldier. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show what a mother, how a mother would react. A mother would not weep silently. She mm -hmm. would scream her heart out. So that's what I wanted to express here. Yeah, it's, it's heart-wrenching. Yeah. And I thought maybe, mm. I thought maybe the message would get across. Now, why should I be concerned about the message, right? It's a work of art. Well, as an artist, you're trying to communicate no matter what you do. If I did a painting about the glory of war, I would want to communicate that. Yeah. So if I do a painting about the horror of war, 
that's also something I would want to communicate about. So that's what I was trying to communicate here. I put in the smoke uh, like burning oil fields to a degree based on references. You know, like uh, you can see references in magazines and so on mm-hmm. of burning, burning oil fields or burning things. And then I even put a gold in the sky, like the religious paintings, you know, in the Middle Ages, just to get the symbolism across. Because I wanted to make that identification, that connection. Yeah. And I felt I felt that to make an anti-war statement, I felt that if if this is something like the Pieta, where a mother is grieving because her son is dying or dead, that should ring bells, right? So how I mean, do you- it, should, it should remind you of the injustice that Jesus Christ suffered. Yeah, it's interesting you compared this to or compared tragedy like this to the crucifixion. To me, it's ironically, I just finished a crucifixion. And uh, to me, the difference is when someone looks at the crucifixion, for many people, it's hard to even look at that. But they see it as in a way positive because it gives them hope of salvation. Whereas this this forces them to think about how horrific the world can be. It, it's definitely a different kind of tragedy. So my question to you is, how do you get this work out there? How do you spread the message? When and how do you get these paintings seen? I mean, even if you were to sell it privately, then it's just in someone's home. But when you have an important, right. heavy message like this, what have you done, if anything, to get it out there in front of the world? Well, uh, the museum directors <laughs> don't exactly take work in for these reasons. Mm-hmm. They take work in based on the politics and the wealth of the people who are donating. Right. Yeah. You know, even, even you know, have you seen my book? Yeah, I have it. Yeah, okay. Well, I try to bring that over to the Metropolitan Museum. And the book, the book, the... Uh, the director of the bookstore thought it was a good idea, but he said, but it's got to get approval in some office by some buyer or something. And they wouldn't give it approval. Well, this painting was not on the cover. On the cover was my bus stop painting. Hmm. Well, you could uh, always take it to the MoMA and like piss on it in front of them and call it performance art. Yeah, I would tell him <laughs> Picasso influenced me. And he did. Yeah, he did influence me. Well, and because, so did Michelangelo. That's right. But the reason I say Picasso is because in painting his Guernica. He was painting something that was rather anti establishment, right? And therefore, if this great artist could paint this, you know, anti-war painting, why couldn't I paint this? The difference is you should paint it. It needs to be painted. But the difference is that he was so non-objective, people don't have to think when they look at it. 
because without reading the title, you wouldn't know what it was about. With his, so he was kind of playing it safe, which is ironic because he's perceived as being brave. But when you make it so non-objective, it's playing it safe. When you do what you do, you're you're just forcing people to think about this. There's no way you can look at this and just go, "Well, that's a pretty picture." You have to think about the suffering. When you look at Picasso's painting, is that what you say when you look at it? That it's just a pretty picture? No, I don't like Picasso's work, but, but I know, right. I know. But when you look at his Guernica, <laughs> do, do you know the Guernica? I'm not sure. I'm familiar with it. I'm not a fan okay. of Picasso. Right, put yeah. it on. Put Let's it, pull it up. You can find them easily. Okay, how do you spell Gornica? G-U-E-R-N-I-C-K-C-A. Oh, this? There it is. Yeah, yep. I'm familiar with this. Blow it yeah, up? Yeah, I'm familiar with this. Okay, is that a pretty picture? No, I guess that is a little bit dark, but it's still not, it's still, because it's not absolutely representational or, or naturalistic, I, I think is a better word. It still doesn't have the same impact that yours has. Yours is gut-wrenching. And this, not, not quite as much. And I don't mean that, you I know, mean that as a compliment. Yeah. Keep in mind, this is a compliment no, that know, you're doing know, something difficult. Yeah, I mean, uh, see, is... I've heard people, I've heard people say that that Guernica is gut wrenching. Not like yours. If you look at you look, no, I know, I know, mine is not so gut wrenching, but mine is more realistic. You can relate as a person. Over yeah. here, you have cartoonish symbols. Yeah, it doesn't have the same impact in my different opinion. Different things. Yeah. Well, that's well, but you see, people speak of it differently because they've got used to that jingle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole topic in of itself. I think people say what they think they're supposed to say on some level. But but anyhow, I use him for cover. Yeah. When they say you can't mix politics with art, so I I say look at Picasso. Yeah, who says that? It, you know, galleries today. Oh, a lot of people say. Really, that. you know, uh, I was inter interviewing Teresa Oaxaca some time ago, and she was saying that her yeah. galleries are pushing her to get more political, and she doesn't want to. But the oh. high, the so-called <laughs> high-end galleries are saying, "You've got to, you've got to get political. You've got to be painting about the, the latest controversial political issues, or you're not going to be relevant." But. But it's, I, I, personally, I feel like, well, for one, these are certain types of galleries. There are galleries that, that want to play it safe and there are galleries that want you to be edgy. But there's also safe political art and there's also, and, and there's really, really in your face, force you to think, make you feel something political art. And that's what this is. And as much as an artist, I would own this because I can't feel anything but admiration for everything that this painting is. But I could see how, you know, the average schmo would not want to walk down the stairs every day and see a gory scene like this. Right? Let me tell you, let me tell you what happened. Well, I entered this into the ARC competition. You know, Art Renewal Center? ARC, yeah. ARC. Mm -hmm. 
and they gave me the top award, first prize. Should that's excellent. But then, then uh, what's his name? Um, Oh boy, forgetting his name. You talking about the, the head of the, ARC? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember either. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, he said, you know, he he was very happy with this and so on. He said he wanted to buy it, but he said his wife said she could not live with this. That's what I'm talking about. My wife would say right. the same thing. I would buy it and hang it in my All house, right. but she wouldn't. Oh, yeah. You see that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she'd say the same thing. But yet, yet, if they were Christian, they would hang a crucifixion. Yeah, and, and they would because of what I'd said earlier, because actually yeah. most people in my faith don't like the crucifixion either for the same reason. But, but, but there are many that do, and I think the difference is because they see it as providing hope, whereas a painting like this is, is um, it just every day you look at it, instead of getting hope from the sacrifice of Christ, you get discouragement of how bad humanity can behave. It's like, it's a different message, same gore, right? And- no, I, know, I know what you mean, I know yeah. what you mean. And so, yeah. but I think, I mean, it's, paintings like this need to be painted. Well, one of the things that I usually say is what John Keats said, truth is beauty. And by that I mean, that killing in war is not beauty, but beauty is the telling of the truth. I absolutely. And in art, just like in writing, you're telling the truth or you're telling a lie. A lie is sweeping all the stuff under the rug. Or you're saying nothing. Yeah. I think that's yeah. another option. Yeah. Yeah. And And I think that artists should have the courage of their convictions. If their conviction is throw garbage on the wall because it might make a million dollars, that's their conviction. <laughs> I'm not saying they don't have right to their expression. No, they do. But I should, I should have the same right. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's why I said it's ironic that you were told at the school you taught at that you're not expressing yourself or that <laughs> you should be expressing yourself and and who defines personal expression and who 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 decides what it's supposed to look like whether it's supposed well, to be no, representational no. The, the, uh, the the objection there the objection there you know at the school of visual arts was that uh to have this separate program no i was Steve talking about the school before do. that where Stephen assail and Ricky Mojica, you taught them. I was under the impression that. Oh, oh, you mean at the, at art and design? The yeah, high that you weren't expressive enough. You know, uh, realism is old hat. You know, and yeah, just let's go along with what's in vogue. Gotcha. And, they, and maybe they really believe what what was in vogue was better. Well, let's you look know, at. But I think that they should have given us an opportunity. I agree. All right, let's look yeah. at something else that's meaningful to you. I just want to point this out real quick. This yeah. is the one that won first place or the Draper Prize right. a little while ago at the Port Society well, of America. Society. Yeah, that yeah. was awesome. And it's impressive because it's a small painting. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was very impressed. Because, you know, here I'm doing a painting 
can call it a portrait of this man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an ordinary guy. I found him very interesting as a person. Uh, in fact, I met him at uh, Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. um, protest. So I said to him, you know, you look interesting. Would you pose for me? So he posed and I did this painting. And I thought to myself, I'm going to enter it. You know, probably wouldn't get anything because a portrait is usually a painting of a wealthy person who often buys the painting. Mm -hmm. So here I show this and the guy doesn't even have a shirt and tie on. You know, and then they give me a first prize. That said to me a lot about the portrait society. Oh yeah, they're that they, very open Their principles, their principles are more human than just dress up. Absolutely. In fact, it's pretty uncommon for a standard traditional portrait to win high praise. You know, it's often something a little yeah, bit different. Yeah. All right, let me let me. Well, but then I mean, you can you can start interpreting all kinds of expression into it. Oh, absolutely. Okay, this one I have to know about. You're looking at that one. What is going on here? Well, that was also about the war in Iraq. I don't know if you ever saw the photographs. Not um, like that. No, did you ever ever see the photographs that American soldiers took? in a prison in Abu Ghraib. I did not. You never heard of Abu Ghraib? Yeah, I have, but I never saw the photos. Oh, because it was all over, it was all over the newspapers and TV at the time. Yeah. And these soldiers were taking, can you blow it up? The soldiers were taking these uh, photographs of the torture that was going on. And to them, it was a lot of fun. Ugh. They were, they were laughing sneering, and so on. Can you make it bigger? I don't know if I can. I tried to. Oh. Yeah, I'm not, I don't see that as an option. All right. Okay. Let me see. We keep keep talking about it, and I'll play around for a second <laughs> okay. here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ah, here All we right. go. So we anyhow, go. there you go. Okay. So uh, when I saw those photographs, I felt... You know, there's something here that reminds me of the crucifixion. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, not, not that I saw this guy in this exact position. I saw him in similar positions with the black hood on, you know, and uh, he may have been nude or may not. But I know, I know in the crucifixions, uh, the, Jesus always has a loincloth on. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I painted him in him here. And this was about, you know, how the American soldiers were torturing our prisoners, whether they knew they were guilty or not, but to, you know, to get information. So you torture and humiliate. And these photographs showed that very clearly. So I felt this reminds me of the crucifixion story. But this is today. Hmm. And here we are, a, a country predominantly Christian, going along with this activity, you know, and I felt, you know, I wanted to paint this. Is it hard uh, for you to paint things mess- like this? What was that? Is it difficult for you to paint things like this? Because 
I would imagine you have to, th you're, it forces you to think about these terrible events day in and day out while you're painting them. It would seem like you would need some kind of an emotional break from it with all that time that you, that you would have to spend with a painting like this. Well, there is, there is an emotional feeling that I try that I have about war, about humiliation, about torture. Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to solve the problem. Right. I think a lot like the old masters would have, or even good illustrators of the golden age would mm -hmm. have. So you think about various things, you know, the composition, how are you going to place them? How are you going to deal with light and dark and things like that? Uh, how are you going to costume the people if that's necessary? See, all those things become important. The background to a degree was some of the things I saw in the photographs. The look of the people and the, the uniforms, or like I saw in the photographs. Everybody in this painting posed for me from life. Really? Nothing here is from photographs, except for the dog. I couldn't get a dog to snap like that. <laughs> but in the photographs that the American soldiers took, there was a photograph of a dog just like that. So that dog is painted from one of those photographs. No kidding. And and here here in painting this composition, I wanted to put the man, you know, with that black hood on, because it was what I had seen in many of those torture scenes. I also wanted to make him nude without the loincloth, because I don't think the soldiers would have cared that he has a loincloth on, or they probably would have taken it away. After all, humiliate the guy even more. I also knew that Arabs are circumcised, like Jews. Aren't circumcised. The guy who posed, what? They're not circumcised, you mean? Or they, oh, they are. are? Oh, they oh, are. they're not, they're not. They're not, They're okay. not. No, right. Arabs are not. And since I'm Jewish, I know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm just painting it the way I think it would have been. Mm -hmm. I didn't see a photograph like this, exactly. But I saw photographs very similar with the feces and the blood on the, on, the, on the victim. I saw the women soldiers with their thumb up, and they all, they all had gloved hands because they don't want to get contaminated. Man. So you see, I'm expressing a number of things. You know, it's anti-torture. It's against humiliation of people. You know, giving them a certain kind of uh, dignity and so on. Hmm. So that's, that's what made me do this. Now, I've gotten some flack on this. From who? Well, in the union that I had d done paintings for, there was a few workers who came over to me and said, are those American soldiers? And I said, yes. And they said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And I said, I don't think it's American or patriotic to humiliate and torture people. Well, anyhow, it would have gotten into an argument and so on, you know, 
and they were much bigger than me. They outnumbered me. Mm -hmm. But I felt I felt strong about what I felt, what I painted about. So where is this painting now? now it's in my studio. <laughs> oh my goodness! I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't know if a museum is going to take it, and I don't think anybody is going to want to hang it in their house. You know. And you're welcome to come over and take a look someday when I come back when home, you visit New York. When I come home to visit my parents, I'm coming to see you. If I haven't had time to think about this particular war in a long time, I mean, it's been now we've got our own, we've got new wars to think about, right? It's but similar Israel, issues, Israel and Gaza, right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and but the thing is. When I react to this, whether I agree with your politics or not, and the reason I say I haven't had time to think about it is because I'm not sure how I feel. I have, I have so many mixed feelings. I'm one of those people that tends to empathize with both sides on some level and just have, and I'm not sure what to think a lot of the time. But, but when I look at this, I'm not offended because you just, you're telling me that you're painting something that happened. So what's the, even if you disagree with this, this uh with your politics even if you disagree with your politics you can't hold you accountable for painting something that actually happened no right right that's how i see it i mean where's the crime right. so that's why that's why if something if something terrible happens sweep it under the rug or deny it yeah I mean, you could be 100% supportive of this behavior. But these were photographs based on photographs that American soldiers sent. That's what I'm saying. I mean, even if you, even if this gentleman just said that you should be ashamed of yourself, my opinion yeah. is you didn't make it up, right? It's a documentation yeah. of what's yeah. actually happening, regardless yeah. of what your politics yeah. are. Where's the crime? I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, man, yeah, this stuff is heavy, though. So tell me... I know a little bit about some of these because I do have your book, but I want you to tell me as though I don't. Yeah, tell me about a couple things. more of these uh, paintings. Right. I, I really like these up here. Okay, put on the bus stop. Yeah. Okay, now over here, over here, it's just the opposite of what I just painted. Mm -hmm. Over here, this is more like what I feel is the beauty of America. And the beauty of America is that you have people from all over the world are able to live together. Over here, they're at a bus stop because at a bus stop, you get all kinds of people mm -hmm. coming together to take the same bus. And at least you can get on the bus and sit anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have a uh, Jim Crow situation like you had in Birmingham some years ago. So that is the beauty of America to me. You know, I keep thinking of what Emma Lazarus wrote in the Statue of Liberty. You know, give me your tired, poor, humbled, uh, yearning masses to be free. And that to me is especially meaningful, not just because of how I feel, uh, you know, as an American, as an American Jew in New York, who, when I was a kid, faced anti-Semitism. And yeah, the point I'm making is that uh, I want to get the reality of, as I said, what is the beauty of America? 
And it's all kinds of people living together, you know, in harmony, even though they come from different traditions and they're of different races and religions. You know, that is important to me. But at the same time, I'm trying to paint people with their identity, not just as part of the groups they're from, but also as individuals. So I'm not painting mannequins but I'm painting the individuals of the characters. Now, to that degree, I had models pose. Every single person here posed from life. No kidding. Wow, and even that this way, is Ricky, right? Ricky Mojica? That's Ricky. Even his daughter and he posed like this? Yeah, well, his daughter was fidgety. I took a photograph of her. Oh, okay. The woman in the center with the yellow hat is my wife. Awesome. I took a photograph of her. She couldn't stand that long. <laughs> but everybody else posed. Wow. You know, and, um, you know, and I tried what, to do What about it this lady? As much as, yeah, she, she held a cup up. She was a professional model. No joke. She held a cup up as if she's drinking coffee. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's some of the things you might see at a bus stop sometimes. You know, uh, the guy on the left side with the white shirt and the smoke and a cigarette, mm -hmm. he's a worker in my studio building, you know, and he's, uh, you know, from Mexico. And it's interesting that, you know, it's now that we talk about the border problems. <laughs> and this guy's a wonderful worker. And some of the other people are also from Latin countries. Right. But they're from all over. And not just from those countries. You know, See, and the point is, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm going to ask something a little okay. different. So go ahead and finish your thought on that. Okay. I wanted to say several things. As a Jew, you know, coming from Europe and having these progressive feelings about life, about society. I feel that I want to express what I feel is important. And I feel that this kind of harmony between people is extremely important. And, and getting to the question you were about to raise before about Israel and Gaza, there too, the crux of the problem is that, the, that Arabs there, Muslims, are not accepted as equal individuals. And you're gonna have crazies and, you know, uh, terrorists doing terrible things. But I think the crux of the problem is that you have a, uh, a, a um, you know, a, a situation where Arabs don't have equal rights. I mean, there are settlers coming into Arab homes on the West Bank, kicking them out of their homes because they take the attitude that as Jews, we have the right to this place. You don't have the right. You know, I mean, that's, that's terrible. That's, I mean, uh, you know, even if you have religious reasons for something, you know, which is a Zionist, issue. But I think the, the basic human feeling is that people have to learn to live together. 
and live in a democracy. You know, and a democracy is not a place where some people have rights and others don't. So that's my attitude about that. Sure, yeah. it's terrible what what what, what uh, Hamas did, but then again, I think when you bomb the hell out of a population, and you're killing hundreds more civilians, that's not the answer. That's just vengeance. Hmm. Man, so I mean, you got to you... put yourself now. Now you see, I'm I'm a Jew, and I'm proud of it. Right. But at the same time, I feel that there is a fairness that you have to have. And you yeah. can't punish children and civilians. Hey, look, this has happened before. You know, I mean, even though, you know, I was against the Japanese and the Germans in World War Two. It was a very similar thing when we dropped uh, uh, the atom bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Think of all those people, civilians, who died. Do you remember that? I was alive then. But you were young. You were very uh, well, I was born. I was, yeah, I was, uh, no, I was, uh, the end of the war, I was uh, 15, 14. Yeah. Man. No, Do you I intend to paint the... this this Gaza situation? Do you have a have you been thinking much about that? I haven't I haven't been. I haven't been doing a lot of these larger multi-figure paintings because I'm getting a little too old. Yeah, they're hard. And, uh, you know, so I've been what I've been concentrating more on lately is just uh, is more doing studies and demos and teaching. Yeah. You know, and trying to get the word across or the skill across the people who want to learn it. Yeah. That's why I'm teaching an online class. I teach a uh, private class. I teach uh, at the Art Students League, a painting class. But it's all a la prima. You know, it's not the academic approach, as you know. So, first of all, I want to extend a compliment to you, something I observe about your work. Because as a multi-figure painter, I can absolutely appreciate this and simply how difficult it is. But one of the things I don't think a lot of artists realize is as is that as a multi-figure painter, you also kind of have to be like a film director. And you have to you have to figure out a way to make a scene, make every character in the scene more than just a placeholder. They have to be doing something interesting and also seeming natural. And that can be really hard to do. And I, I look at this painting and I think, why how did he think to have her Pose drinking the coffee just like that and Ricky holding his daughter like that. And just even the way that one woman is walking off of the edge of the canvas. These are very subtle details that I think are really smart. So I just want to tell you that, first of all. Okay. And the, but the answer is that that's what I saw. That's what they were doing. Maybe but you not said you did it from life. Yeah, yeah. So if the woman was walking at some point, I said, wait a minute, that's interesting. Can you hold that pose? So she held that pose as if she's walking. Oh, you make, so you're making, you're making it sound easy. You still had to be the one to select all the poses oh, yeah, and put yeah. them in the right Absolutely, place. Absolutely, right, yeah. right. And that's very where it gets often, hard. Very often I would do uh, f figure study paintings. 
mm-hmm. you know, as uh, preliminary sketches. You know, um, you know, so that's what I would do. Uh, yeah, let's it, talk more about was, that. How look, maybe we can tell me a little bit about how you put this particular painting together, because it's obviously you've mentioned it's mostly from life, but you did mix in some photography. So tell me yeah, right, from right. step by step how a painting tell like this it, goes no, together. First of all, I did use photography to help me with some things. For example, the street. Okay. I didn't paint out in the street. So I took a photograph of the sidewalk, the street, the gutter, you know, to get the reality of it. Just as I want to get the reality of the people. I want to get the reality of the environment. So the textures, the cracks in the sidewalk and so on is a part of that environment. Uh, the background, the houses there, they were all kinds of makeshift stores, with signs. Well, I took off most of the signs for compositional reasons, mm-hmm. because I just, I wanted to have a simpler dark background for the people. If I had a lot of signs up behind them, it would have taken away the attention from the people. And it's the people that's the main thing to me. So if so you're setting up what, a scene from a photograph, so you photograph this place, how do you get the figures that are posing in your studio to have a similar perspective to the photograph and sit in the space properly? I, might, I, 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 did a, I did some rough pencil sketches out of my head from what I remembered. I would do some sketching sometimes at the bus stop to get ideas of poses. And then I did some sketches, um, that is pencil sketches, uh, you know, just to get a composition, an idea of where I'd want the figures. And then once I did that, I had an idea of how I wanted the figures and where, and I'd ask people to come in and pose, but then it would take on a change because when the people came in, they came in with their own reality. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I wanted them to transform themselves into just an image I had, but I wanted to take from them their personal reality. That's what makes them not a mannequin, but a real person and still part of the whole group, mm-hmm. which is realism. Just as if you're painting, let's say you're painting somebody's uh, head, a portrait, and you're painting someone's nose yeah it's similar to other people's noses but if you can't get that unique quality you're not succeeding you're just painting a copy of everything you know before mm-hmm. and i think that 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 uh, that the the uniqueness is what gives you the individuality of people and that's what makes it realistic I totally agree with that. I I am a stickler. I know you do. I've seen your work. (laughs) Well, and and people will often ask me when I'll do a multi-figure painting, why are you so worried about getting a perfect likeness? It's not like the people, it's not like the viewers are going to know who this person is. And uh, I say the same thing, a similar thing to what you've just said to me. Because if I capture the character of this individual, it makes him feel more alive, more real than if I just do a generic human. That's right, right, right. But it doesn't have to really look like the person as long as it's convincing as an individual. 
Yeah, but don't you agree that it helps to get there by making it look just like oh, yeah, the person? Yeah. yeah. So like Ricky, oh, yeah, because, you nailed him. Because, I mean, I knew for sure that was Ricky. Yeah. Yeah. That's true, right? That's true. Yeah, all the likenesses there are pretty good. Yeah. Even my wife, so although she's in the shade and in the shade, things are a little bit smudged. Yeah. Okay, so you go from, you've got the sketches to lay all the people in the proper place. Where do you go from mm -hmm. there? Um, what I, what I do is this, when I have the basic idea and just on, in pencil, before people have even posed, I'll ask the people to come in who I think I want as models and they will take a pose and I'll paint a study of them. And then I'll look at that and then, and then, uh, make a grid okay so i know where i'm going to fit that person into a larger grid on the painting and then when i start the painting i will ask the model to come in again and paint them from life onto the large canvas just like i assume the old masters did mm -hmm. yeah so the grid helps so, you I mean, to make so sure they're in the right place You've got the yeah. right scale, yeah. the right yeah. proportion relative to the environment. Then, then you have it locked in and you can bring them in from life and not have to worry about that while you're paying them to model. Yeah, well, you have them basically in the right place. Yeah. But as you're painting from life, you know, things are going to change a little bit. Right. So you go with those changes. Right. Because the main thing is not the sketch you did. That just gives you a basic idea. The main thing is the model that's posing for you. Right. Okay. You're not painting the larger painting from the smallest study. The smallest study is just to give, give you an idea of what the pose is going to be more or less like. Do you do a color study to make sure that the painting is harmonious before you start bringing in models? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. And do you do it in oil? Uh, I don't think I did in. I don't think I did in this case. Okay, so you just sort this of wing what, it. You're like, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this you... is what they were wearing. My wife didn't like the dress she had on, but I kind of liked it. So I, I didn't please her. So you just whatever they happen to come in, you stick them in the painting. You're not worried about making sure there's, you know, you're balancing the reds and the blues and whatever. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I would. Yes. Okay, but and you start with what they come and what they offer you. Yeah. And then if yeah. necessary, you'll change it. Yeah. And sometimes I'll change positions depending on the shading or how that looks. Like, for example, the shading that crosses the woman in the yellow dress drinking coffee. See, there's a shade right across her midsection. Now, I like that compositionally, especially yeah, as cool. it relates to the other figure or the or the fellow in the front with the white t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then over here, you could technically have dragged that shadow and put this girl in Ricky's shadow, but you chose not to, which is interesting. Yeah, we could, no, it would have been too much. Yeah. Over there, the shadow went across, and uh, I didn't, I just let it taper. Yeah. Because I, I wanted know. the dark legs of the, uh, of the beggar. 
to to stand out better. Yeah. And then that if you notice decision. the girl the girl behind who happened to also have been a student of mine in uh, in art and design high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's uh, walking along and see I wanted her jeans and sneakers a little bit lighter than the beggar's pants in that position. I mean, all these things are, you know, are thought out. Yeah. Sometimes I love the way you paint denim. You take them... Oh, <laughs> a lot of people, when I see you... denim, it's, it almost looks, it doesn't look quite like denim because it's, it's too monochromatic, but you've put all this extra color yeah. in it, which makes it feel more raw and not like a natural oh, yeah. fiber. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, I'm big on texture. I like dealing with texture. Go to my still life section over here. Yeah. Life, still life. Right here. Okay. Yeah. All right. What do you, you want to look at? You see the one down here, over here? I it's, can't uh, see your finger. The red cloth. <laughs> okay. It's uh, the red cloth Second right here? row down that one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now there, there is a still life. But here I also put a figure in. That's my wife. Wow, when was this paint? Oh, night 77. That's awesome. That's when I had the morning group. That's when I was learning to paint better. Wow. So here, so here, this is in my home. So here I have a light on this fabric that's on this mahogany round table. You see, and then in the background, I asked my wife to sit down on the couch. Well, this often becomes a lesson to my students. How do you paint white? in the shaded areas. It's a little bit like the off-white wall, the white of her dress. It's not like the picture or the white material on the side, on the right side. Yeah. There's also the question of texture. You know, how do you make that metal tray look like the tray it is? Or the cloth look like that? Or the yellow envelope look like that paper yellow envelope? And so on and so forth. It's all it's all a question of painting what you see, mm-hmm. and that's where this teacher, um, who, what was his name again? Hawthorne, Charles Hawthorne said, "Paint what you see, not what you know." And when you paint what you see, you'll get the texture that you see. The problem is, people paint what you know, what they know, so they're using some formula from something else that doesn't work for this. I would argue it's what they think they know. That's that's where the problem lies. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I, I agree okay. with the statement because when a student comes yeah. in and starts painting what they so-called know, what they know is wrong. Yeah. It's yeah. it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, this painting reminds me of a um uh William Merritt Chase. Oh painting. Thank you. Yeah. It's just he his his work was a little bit looser. It was, but the, it's the, just this this particular one is a bit tighter. Yeah, but the figure Except in the background, the background, the background is what reminds yeah, me of Chase. Loose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's loose. Yeah. And, and this she, is still in your in, home. No, that was sold. No, oh, this was sold. Oh my gosh, I'd kill for a painting yeah. like that of yours. So oh. beautiful. Hmm. Can we look at some more of your still lives? <laughs> yeah. Open up the still life section. Yeah, because well, you know, I'm not really that familiar with your still life. Chicken, I think of the first one is chicken soup. This is so great. Over here I used I got a raw chicken. 
See, over here, I asked my mother how she made chicken soup. So she told me I wanted to know the ingredients. Well, I didn't make the chicken soup, but I painted the painting. That's awesome. And and uh, let me give you some clues. You got to paint the chicken first. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's going to spoil. <laughs> yeah. That's what they say and, about painting fish. That's got to be the worst subject to paint. That's right. And metal and wood and bread can wait. So you paint the chicken, then you throw it out, wash the dish, put it back. No, no, no. no. Oh. Yeah, you know what I mean. You, <laughs> you can leave it there, but it's, you know, and some things as they, as they spoil, you can take out and put play, replace them. Mm -hmm. you know, well, that depends how fast you are. Yeah, that's great. So anyhow, the point I was making is about texture. About, you know, getting the texture of these things, whether it's the texture of the onion, the kind of peels that it has, or the wood gray, or any of the parts, the chicken, the pot. But when you and say texture, is, when you say texture, you're not referring to building up body in the paint. You, you're no. you're referring to creating the illusion of the texture of that's the right. subject. That's right. Okay. Right. And that's what I usually try to get the students to do, because if they don't do that, then all they're concerned about is the texture of the paint. They're not painting what they see. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it may work out that you have more texture. You know, it depends what you're painting. Also depends on how you, what your painting is like. I mean, you know, Soroya was a great painter. I love his stuff. <laughs> he had, he had some big brushes there that he used. Yeah, I don't know. He was a magician. Yeah. Crazy. Now, my father, I think, was very influenced by him. Really? You know, if you I saw could see some that. Of, I remember the his, hands. He's done, some, he's done some painting outdoors of, uh, uh, you know, like uh, me sitting on a log with a friend. But, um, you know, he, yeah. really right out there in the sun. Yeah, well, that's that's a little rough. That well, yeah, but that hand, off. that hand, and this fabric kind of feels like yeah. Soroya esque to me. Oh, all right, let's pull back here. Let's get your paintings back here. See, okay. There was a, there was another one that I wanted to show. The one I sent of my mother lying on a couch. Okay. It was along with the self portrait my father did. Right. Let's get that. Oh, right here. There it is. Yeah. Those, See, that's a this it's is your a little father's painting. work. That's my father's, yeah. And, yeah. It, it's, and it got a glare. Now, this is something he painted in 1927. Wow. A long time ago. Do Hanging you own in my this? House. Yeah. What a treasure. Yeah. Also, I have I have his the self-portrait also in my house. Wow. And uh, he was a marvelous painter. Now, I like to show this because you can see the kind of skill he had when he was a young painter. I mean, after all, he did this when he finished the academy and the and the school and the schools in Berlin and Paris. And I think he was back in New York and then they just did this when he first met my mother. So is he in his 20s when he did this then? Um no, 30s. He was born in 1891. Wow. 
Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a treasure that you own something like that. And there's also the sense the sensitivity. I mean, you look at the color of her arms or skin tones, compare it to the yellow dress. It's very similar, subtle. But different. Yeah, it's just barely more red here. in it. Right, right. Just barely. Now, now that that subtlety is something that I, I haven't seen in his later work. His later work was very rough and crude, hmm. but he still had a wonderful sense of color and the way he would boldly put on the paint. Do you think it was intentional or yeah. just a product of getting older? And or do you think he was getting weaker as a painter? Or just intentionally? I think his, his eyesight was going. Oh, okay. But uh, when he was getting bolder, he might have also been a little more influenced, you know, even though he wanted to make a living doing portraits, which he did. But at the same time, um, he, um, he would see what the style is. And people seem to want things that are more brushy, not as finished. Hmm. You know, so he would use a bigger brush and swing, swing away with more paint. You know, Max, I had a student who was in her seventies and I was trying to teach her how to do, how to see flesh, how to see all the subtle colors in flesh, the subtle temperature variations. And she kept on making these little purple areas in the flesh. It was almost like blotchy, just blotchy spots of purple instead of having a smooth tone across right. a across a plane of the face there would be like little blotches of purple strokes here and there very subtle it wasn't like an extreme purple it was just almost like the difference between this arm and dress just subtle blotches of a little bit too purple of a stroke and then she found out she had cataracts which makes her see yellow and everything so what was oh, really? what was happening was these purples to her look gray so she couldn't see oh them. my goodness yeah, it took like a year for us to figure it out. Why she, I kept saying it's too purple. Then she'd make it, she'd, she'd overshoot it in the other direction because she was trusting me, but yet she couldn't see what she was doing. And it was just, it was tough, but it was a lesson learned as a teacher that you got to pay attention to your students' yeah, eyes yeah. as much as their brains. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. All right. So can I look at a few more of your still lives? Because I yeah, wasn't, I'd love it. I wasn't well, familiar. You can look at other things too. Yeah. Well, I want to look at another one of your figurative paintings too, but I want to pick out maybe just one or two. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Of my favorite still lifes that you have here, like this is gorgeous. And it's 1977. So most of these, this is why I'm not as familiar. These are all older. Well, these are these are things that I did largely around the time that I had that morning group right. of art and design when Steve and Ricky were my students. Yeah, wow. Yeah, 1978, I was four years old. This is great. Um, all right, so in your newer work, this is another painting that I've always loved that you did. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how what this one means, but also how you put it together, because it's really complex. A year ago, I got a prize for this at the Butler, in, at the Butler Museum oh, for the surprised. artist. So it's in their collection now. But uh, over here, I wanted to deal with the issue of um, 
of uh, foreclosure, people losing their homes, mm. which to me sounds like an inhuman thing. Oh, so this was done. you don't have the money. Oh, was this based on the recession of 08? Just sort of? Uh, probably. Okay. But I think it's happened. It's happened not just during the recession, but right. during a variety of times. I just wondered if that but inspired still, it. When, you, yeah. when people are driven out of their homes for, for reasons that they just don't have the money, you know, it's a horrible thing. It's unfortunate. It's a tragedy. So this mm. is one of the many tragedies that I feel artists should paint. Because, I mean, especially if you have, um, you know, a feeling of uh, some kind of sympathy for humanity, mm -hmm. you know, they should, people shouldn't have to suffer like this, like this, especially when you have families and children and so on. So in order to do this, this guy who's posing here was a student in that morning group, a contemporary of Steve's. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and he he posed for me. He was he was uh, around my studio at the time, so I asked him to pose. So I asked him to pose as if he might have a family and they just lost their home. So I told him, "Make believe you're crying." You see, he put his hand up there. So I, you know, you get that feeling, and I wanted him a certain type of look. You know, like. Uh, like it could have been uh, maybe some middle-aged guy from Long Island or someplace like that, mm -hmm. you know. And he has that look, you know. Uh, and uh, and the, the little girl is my granddaughter. Uh, she is holding on to him, you know, as if she's the little girl, the girl in the family, and she's looking for security. So she's holding her doll and also holding on to him. And the other people, you can see, they're all suffering with anguish. You know, even the mother has that forlorn look, while her baby doesn't know anything, baby's just nursing away. That woman was a model who happened to have had a baby at that time. Hmm. So it came in handy. And then I put a lot of my furniture around and uh, I took photographs of it. I didn't bring the furniture into my studio, but I painted that, you know, jumbled all over. So you just photograph it from all done. different angles and just collage it together? Yeah, yeah, I photographed it and then just freehand painted it in. I didn't, uh, in this case, I didn't trace it like in an illustration. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you uh, chose to I, do a yeah. uh, French easel right here. That's my French easel. Yeah, <laughs> a little piece of yourself right there. Yeah, right. And uh, and then, you know, the background is, uh, you know, some house could have been in a suburb. Over there, there's a roll of a carpet against the wall. Because, you know, when people move, the stuff is out in the street. So, you know, again, this is some of the injustices in humanity to man that exists that I wanted to paint. Well, I'm grateful this one's in the butler. So this one's being seen. That's good to know. Being seen, right. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's where your paintings belong. They belong in museums. I mean, particularly uh, these social themes. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, there there are some others you might find interesting. This is this uh, see, is this, really this, tight. Well, or, it's a big painting. Oh, so yeah, it's just really large. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah. Uh, this was at a peace march, and it was against the war in Iraq. Might see, see. You might see some of the signs. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And the war now. And the on. war, bring the troops home. Uh, yeah. Money for education, yeah. not war. Peace is patriotic. That's it. There you go. Yeah. And then, you know, so what I did is, as I, I was at that march, I took photographs. And then I, this, this is all done from a lot of different photographs. Now, so you picked characters the from the different photographs and... Yeah, yeah. It okay. depends on how they looked. The, right. The activity, the the uh, the uh, you know the poses they had, which were not poses, they were candid, you mm -hmm. know, motions. Uh, the woman with the carriage on the left, she had an empty carriage, so I needed a baby. So that's Ricky's daughter, who's the baby. No kidding. You know the same the same girl he was holding in bus stop. But this was painted several years earlier, so she was just a little baby. So this one, it makes me want to ask the same question again. How did you manage to get the perspective on this one right when you're picking and choosing characters? Because with the focal length of your camera, you're getting some major, some major perspective and foreshortening here. And you get this character up front that has this, you know, kind of wide angle quality to it. You know, the figure's almost bending in the, with the, the, from the wide angle lens. But then the figures back here are going to be flatter. So if you're picking and choosing characters, how do you just put them in different spaces without screwing up the perspective? Okay. Well, uh, several things. Uh, when I used the photographs, uh, I then made a pencil sketch, mm -hmm. copying the images in the photo and assuming I wanted them in a certain position. So when I sketched them in that position, freehand, I would estimate how they should look. So you'd so modify. The perspective, well, the, so the perspective would seem right. I'm okay, not so just to be clear. For those who don't understand in the podcasts, with these figures back here, the feet are on the same plane because of the perspective. You're not looking down and up at the same time. Whereas the figure in the foreground, if your eye level is around waist, then you're looking more up at his chin, but down at his feet. So his feet end up on a different separate planes. So what you're saying is yeah. you would take a character like this that may have been standing in the background you'd put his feet on a different plane in order to create this oh, illusion yeah. of perspective. Oh yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. You would, you would place their feet and their head where you think it would logically be in terms of where you want them in the space. Man, you nailed it. You see, Cause it so looks convincing. Notice, yeah. Well, look in general, uh, you notice that for, for my height, I guess I would be about the level of this woman. So do you see my scroll? No, I can't my see arrow? your screen. No. Oh. Okay, if you go, with you're the probably woman like with this the woman here. You're what? You're like five, three, or oh, four. No, or something. a little taller than her. A little taller. Okay. But like for example, the guy in the front. You go by his nose. Right. Yeah, the guy in the front. 
And if you go straight across, that's the eye level. Right. So everything below that is going to go higher in perspective. So the feet of all those other people are going to go higher. And you estimate what looks good for that purpose. Man. You have to consider you have to consider the distance. You also have to consider whether they're a tall or short person. Mm -hmm. See, and you kind of make it up. You know, if the person that you paint is not that tall and looks taller, but it works fine. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You see, but the point is, it has to look convincing. But by using individuals, you get more of the individual unique look. And then also, I'm looking yeah. at the at, at the the motion of the figures. The act. This episode is brought to you in part by Rosemary Brushes. If you're one of my listeners who's a professional artist, you're already using Rosemary Brushes. But for the rest of you, come on, take your work a little more seriously. Stop buying the other brands. It's just not worth it. Every now and then you may get lucky and buy a good brush from another brand, but use the brand that professionals like myself are using. Go to rosemaryandco.com, link in the description or the show notes, and get yourself some quality brushes before your next painting. So here, you know, that works all the same way. Now, also the cast shadows, you know, play a role also. The cast shadow... Uh, looks interesting that explains the figure in the ground. You know, as you know, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. cast shadow explains um, where, you know, about the person it's coming from and the ground that it's on. Yeah. Right. That's what cast shadows do. And in the foreground on the right, it's as if there are other people in the front. But so I didn't want to have just an empty space. So you can sit it you consider those kind of uh, uh, designs, you know, to get that feeling of space and also a composition. So it looks interesting. So it isn't just a big empty space, but it kind of continues the flow of the march. It does. Yeah. I'm working on a painting right now where it, I'm, su I'm suggesting a crowd, but I can only fit maybe a dozen people into the space. And I did the same thing. I cast shadows from outside the borders of the painting to suggest yeah. that the crowd extends beyond the view mm. of the onlooker. Yeah. Now you see in a lot in a lot of these after after two thousand, I did a lot of paintings using photographs. Mm -hmm. See, so that I could get the natural actions, the candid action of people. Uh, like also the fluttering of a flag or a banner. You see, yeah, on the, uh, some of left, these are so left, cool. There's on the upper left. There's a yellow banner. Mm -hmm. You see, so that's what you know. The photograph helps me with. Now, also, if you go to another painting, there's one of children, and you can capture children. Uh, it's I think in the next. Well, even these basketball players. Yeah. You see, yeah. there's the action of those men, you know, and of course you think compositionally also. So, for example, there's um, the texture. We spoke about texture, mm -hmm. how it looks on the people, the skin texture, the texture of the material. The texture is important. 
yet you still have the texture of the ground and the wall, even though there's graffiti on it. But you still keep that feeling that it's a flat, two-dimensional design. Yeah, and you might someone wall. might ask, how do you make a guy look sweaty and his his shirt looks so wet? You totally nailed that here by well, making it translucent. Well, well, you look at the photograph and you copy. You just you you copy paint what you see, not what image. you know. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. right. It may not always be exactly, but you'll get the 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 idea. Yeah. See, and to me, what is interesting mm -hmm. is you get the characteristics of these guys. They aren't exactly, you know, beautiful anatomical images, but they have a power and strength. Even sort of scrawny at times, some of the legs. Yeah. For example. Yeah. You know, and that reality is beautiful, I feel. Oh, I agree. And that's uh, truth. I don't think those are that scrawny of legs. I'm kind of insulted that they look better than my legs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, you got to be careful what you I know, say. I'm teasing you. God. I'm teasing you. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen. Go to that. Go to that image. Uh, this one. See the one up upper left. Oh, I See was those there. Kids. Yeah. This one. Yeah, over there. Yeah. Yeah. You see, uh, this one here is a sandbox. Okay. Now, of course, to do this, you can't stand there and paint. No. But then the kids are not going to pose. But you can get interesting images from the use of the photograph. In a way, that's what the illustration helped me with. You know, to be able to paint the reality in every sense of New York, of the streets that I see. How important was now, it for you to spend years not working from photos, though? Do you think that affected the quality well, of your work? I was... I was under the impression that painting from life was more pure. Yeah. And in a way it is. In a way it is. There are color variations and subtleties that you don't see in the photograph. Mm -hmm. There may be other things too in the image that changes and makes the painting more difficult. But then there are many, many situations you just can't get otherwise. It's not going to look that natural. Maybe some people do. But mm -hmm. I want to get that reality. Now, you look at the kid in the front with the blonde hair. She's moving the sand around. Mm -hmm. You know, you can never really figure out what the color is of that. But with the photograph, it helps you. Mm -hmm. Although I have to tell you that I've used black and white photographs and painted things in color, just like Norman Rockwell did. Yeah, that's really helpful. Especially I've done the same. In, especially in those illustrations. Yeah. I mean, sometimes photographs and painted the color. And you, you know, were doing that this. I knew. You were doing this at a time <clears> where <throat> photography wasn't all as good as it is today. We live in a time now yeah, where the it, cameras are so freaking good. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. It wasn't as good, and that's why many um, people who did the paperback covers paintings uh, use black and white photographs because the form was clearer. Mm -hmm. And then what they would do is make a dark print and a light print. So then in the dark print, they could see better details into the light area. And in the light prints, they could see better variations in the darker areas. Yeah. And now you know what, what artists mean? would in do words, is they just yeah. turn the brightness contrast up and down. Yeah. But then yeah. there were some people 
who were good artists, and they said, nah, I didn't bother with the dark and the light. I just went with the medium photograph. Hmm. And, and that was usually the best. And you see also here, you could see the way sand is. Look at the light in the sand and yeah. the color of the sand, the Purple. sand in the box and the sand on the sidewalk, mm -hmm. the sand on the concrete ledge. You know, and and all 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 throughout, it's all a lot of textures. Painting the textures that you see. I love the beautiful violet let me shadows. Let me sand. tell you, when you go around photographing, it's good to have a decoy. Someone to take tension off of you so you can sneak yeah, up on people. Right. Yeah. Right. So when I go to photograph children, I bring a nanny who's got a kid. No kidding. You see that's uh, smart. You see the woman the woman in the pink striped shirt? Yeah. See, she's the nanny. No she's kidding. taking care of that dark haired kid. But in the meanwhile, <laughs> And they don't. And people don't question you because you you do it like you're, you you they think you're part of her situation. You know, people take right, each other's photographs. Right, right. Hey, that's right. a good tip right there. That's, that's a it. really yeah. good tip. Right, right. Especially well, when it's candid. Sometimes if you're alone, sometimes if you're alone, you might see something interesting, and you know the person's going to object. Yeah, you, you don't want to be photographing people's kids when you're alone. That would be creepy. <laughs> No, well, make believe you're shooting a bird in the, in the branches, <laughs> and then quickly swoop down and just be sure that you can run faster than anybody else who might run after you. Yeah, or just get a big white van that's really creepy in a telephoto lens, and then you're good. <laughs> it's terrible humor. Anyway, okay, yeah. let's see. So let's maybe look at just a couple more of these, and then I want to ask you a final question before we wrap up. Well, now this one's like the other basketball one, but was the other one more of a study for this? Because this seems much more refined. No, no, no? Th this uh, this is this was earlier. Okay. Uh, the other one was a the other one was more recent. Okay. This was done in the seventies, I think. Right? What does it say? Uh, two thousand three. Oh no, two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. So this was later. <laughs> Yeah. Over here, I wanted I, I photographed these guys. Now, here is a situation where they they were really playing in a basketball court in Central Park, and it was in the sun, and there were trees around. But I wanted to put in the background as a poor neighborhood, because most of these guys came from poor neighborhoods. So I I put that in because very often you see guys playing in schoolyards, you know, and uh, and it's in their neighborhood. Right. Uh, so I got that, uh, that um, I took a photograph of an old wall of a building and there were, and I, and there was some shade on it, but I extended the shade so that the light of the figures would stand out. Yeah. It looks so you great. See, I was careful about that. Mm -hmm. But they would have stood out even against the lighter red of the top of the wall. And um, and then, of course, in the process here, you can get a little more of the action of the figure, where they're jumping, things like that. Yeah, this figure right they, here is so yeah. beautifully painted. Yeah. Man. And again, I felt like 
I wanted to give that poetic, you might say, story uh, where here these guys are having a good time. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's probably a poor neighborhood. There's an old wall, there's graffiti on the wall, and there's the schoolyard fence. So it's almost like they're into that sort of imprisoned space. So there's a little bit of that kind of poetry that I often think of when I get things in place. Even with my other paintings, whether it's the crucifixion or mm-hmm. or the or or any, anything, you know, there's always a certain amount of uh, poetry involved. It's strange how paintings, at least for me, maybe it's not the case for other artists, but paintings bring me back to a time in a way photos don't. If I, if you had shown me a photo of, of one, one, two, three, four, five, six strangers playing basketball dated 2003, I wouldn't think much of it. But as I look at this, I keep thinking, huh, I was 28 in 2003. I could see myself playing ball with these guys. This is wild. I wonder what they're doing with their lives now. I wonder where they live. And I don't know what it is about a painting. Maybe it's because I know you were there. I know you interacted with them. There's, and you as the artist. So there's more of that human connection. I don't, do you feel that way oh, about I didn't, paintings? I didn't, I didn't interact with them. No, just by being there and shooting them. You didn't oh, have to well, physically yeah, yeah, well, talk to them. But well, it's it's in a park, and people are taking photographs. Yeah, all over here and there. Yeah, but there's another issue here. You see, I have the white guy in the picture. Yeah, you know, sort of like a token white guy, because most <laughs> of the guys playing ball are black. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he's just standing there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man, yeah, that's great. All right, so I got one final question for you, Max. Well, first of all, before I ask uh, you a final you can question, ask more. I enjoy talking to you about it. Yeah, I, I would, I would stay here all day if I didn't have to go fix my windshield. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's too dark now. In, in New York, it is. You'll forget I'm in Utah. Remember? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, but I do want. I do have a little bit more time, though. So, if there's anything you haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about, I want to open that up to you. Is there something else? that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk uh, about? Yeah, uh, let me see now. Okay, yeah, keep going, going. Go up, move up. Yeah. Can I just zoom in on this one real uh, quick? I like this one. Sure. Yeah. So for those listening, while Max is thinking, it's maxginsburg.com that we're looking at right now, of all of his work, and he's prolific. So there's a ton a very complex work on here. My goodness. Yeah, this, now, this is, is a crazy a painting. complex painting. This is a painting when the trade towers was bombed and uh, people started to sell flags all over. You know, wow. on, on the one hand, I could understand the patriotism, but on the other hand, what kind of got to me was the commercialism of these situations, which happens very often in tragic situations. Yeah. And But over here, it's the same thing as in the bus stop. You see people going here and there, going, you know, through, 
And it's all that mix of many different kinds of people that make up New York. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, I think it's a big thing in today's society where, uh, where there is a, a problem where, you know, people don't want immigrants, especially from countries where they have darker skins, mm. Latin America and so on. Yeah, it's well, it's beautiful, beautifully painted. Absolutely. Okay, so here's a question. Mark. You see the hot dog? See the hot? There's a hot dog stand here. Yeah, this one's great. See, that's another thing that, you know, when I started to use the photograph, I could, because I'm not going to stand out there painting a hot dog stand in the street. No, and he's and not going to stand there the like hot that dogs either. Yeah, and I couldn't take the hot dog stand to my studio. No, if you paid him, uh, you know, like a model, I'm sure he would. But, uh, you know, I couldn't take it up to my studio. Mm -hmm. So you do the best you can. Yeah, I you love know, this so guy back here. I just want to mention that. He's like, what's going on over there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. right. Well, yeah. that's an interesting thing. You have all kinds of expressions that you just can't imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, reality is that way. Yeah. Do you save all your photos from these old works? A lot of them. Really? A lot of them, but not, not all. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, okay. I have, a, you, you know, if you ask me to look for them, I wouldn't always be able to find them. Yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of years of work here. Let me show you some of the earlier work. It's a little rougher. Oh, look at that. Uh, okay. Now over here, for to example, 69. This is you your work? Yeah, that's mine. You see up, uh, see my father stretching canvas? Second uh, one on the left. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's um, gold. See over there, when after I came out of the army, I painted him stretching canvas. Because I was painting with him a lot at that time. And um, so he posed for me. And that's how it looked when he was stretching canvas. That's how he looked. And this was in uh, 1956. Do you do you own this one? I was still? about 25. Do you own this? Uh, yeah, but I, but I, a cousin of mine has it in their house. God, that's a shame. I would kill to own a painting like that. Oh. So it almost has a Monet a quality to it. This is a painting I took to Raphael Sawyer, that artist I told you about. Yeah, you could see he the influence. Very good. He said it's very good, yeah. You can see the influence for sure. Let me show you some other early ones. Yeah. You see that one on the left, on the upper left? Another store, yeah. Okay, so Hopper was a bit of an influence. But instead of getting the cold look of people that Hopper gets... I wanted to get this empathy feeling about this poor man who probably is trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. So that's the issue you see I'm concerned with. So this was back then. This was on the cover of American Artist magazine uh, in 1970. This was painted in 69. Wow. And uh, I was influenced by Hopper because of the way he did buildings, storefronts and so on. You see, but I wanted to get a feeling of warmth, but also 
things I saw, like he had all the earmarks of attracting business. Right? He speaks Spanish. He says he's open, and he's got an American flag on his door. But of course, I mean, the main thing is the painting quality. You know, mm. it isn't always just a story. Because, you know, I've had people who enter their works into exhibitions, and they know I'm on the jury. And they start putting in, you know, poor people in the subway. But it's not painted well. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, the, but, speaking uh, of I textures, went, you yeah. nailed the textures of this old, worn-out paint. Yeah. Old building, yeah. Yeah. Then there's, a, there's another one. Go back to the, the full, full page, yeah. You see on the upper right? Upper right, yeah. These guys were students in my class and when I was teaching in high school. Well, who is this I one? I call it Boricuas. Okay. He was a student in my class. He looks familiar. They were Puerto Rican. I don't think you know him. He might I look like us some other people. Yeah. But he was a student there, and uh, they, they were uh, part of a militant group calling for Puerto Rican independence. He carried a newspaper called Palante. See, but I kind of thought he had a very interesting look, so I asked him to pose. Yeah, he does. And I tried to paint him in my studio, but then as, as I might... As I think of the neighborhood that he lives in and the fact that he's up against all kinds of restrictions and controls. So I have those other, you know, uh, police uh, barriers, but, uh, and the wall, the bars on the window. Mm -hmm. I mean, all this is no accident. Even if you were going to see a movie, everything is directed to make right. a point. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure even with the old masters, whatever they put in their paintings, it's to make a certain point. Of course, on the other hand, you don't want it to look artificial or phony. Mm -hmm. Do you always have a message though? Do you ever just paint for the love of painting? Yeah. You do? And would that I, be more I mean, like I, more I, of your I, studies? I mean, uh, just, no, it's just the love of painting. But you see, even in the love of painting, as I mentioned to you before, I'm interested in capturing the reality of the individual, mm -hmm. not just painting any old thing or not just painting brushstrokes. Right. Now, hey, that older woman, for example, is a friend. Oh, which this older one? one? This of, one here? Of a white hair, yeah. Man. She was a college, you know, classmate of mine in Syracuse when I went to Syracuse. And now, of course, she's older. And she has this very old but strong look mm -hmm. and i kind of appreciated that enjoyed it mm -hmm. yeah, you so got a lot in of... a sense here i'm not glamorizing you see but that's the reality of that woman that is gorgeous now, this was a model who posted it's a very lovely pose. that lighting is just cool that's a beautiful painting i forgot, I forgot, I forgot where i did this do you still have this one uh, no, someone has it. No. <laughs> most of my most of my paintings are sold. Yeah, I figure. But I still have a lot. When you come over, you'll see. Yeah. Yeah. This is something uh, else. Wow. Oh, she was an amazing model. She'd very be fun fat. to paint. Very, very dramatic. Yeah. She had a lot of drama. So whenever she posed, 
you felt uh, sort of a noble, you know, um, quality and very dramatic about everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Yeah. And when you do your studies, you're working a la prima mostly, correct? Just wet into wet. When I do any painting. All my paintings are a la prima. All of them. So when you do a multi-figure painting, you never work back into it? You never... Yeah, you work back into it. I work back into it. I paint, I, I, I brush it in with a big brush, and then I develop the form as I develop the painting. Right, but after, let's in other say... Words, you... I don't. I don't start off with a careful pencil drawing. Right. Well, what I mean is after a painting, let's say you paint a figure one day and then it dries a little bit. Will you ever go back into it and paint on top of the dry figure? Yeah. Okay. If I feel it, if I feel, uh, you know, it needs it. If I feel it'll help. Okay. So sometimes you do paint wet yeah. over dry. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was another one here that was a study for that uh, foreclosure painting. I go back to the overall. Go down, 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 down. Yeah, this one. No, no, you passed it. Woman bent over, down. Go, go down. M move the screen down. <laughs> down. All right, all right, all right. Keep going. Oh, Keep right going. here, okay. right here. I see over it. There. I see yeah. it. Yeah. Now you see, this was a study for that foreclosure painting where there was a woman with her head, hands and her hair. Hmm. Well, then I had her posing again in that big painting, but this was a study for it. Wow. That's cool. I love to see the studies of more complex paintings. It's like the soul of it. All right, Max. So I got one final question for you. So what piece of advice would you give an aspiring artist? Something you wish you had. Um, well, sometimes I tell, I tell the students, uh, don't, don't sell out, marry somebody rich who can support your habit. <laughs> don't marry for love. <laughs> of course they know. That's great advice. I'm always, I'm always joking. <laughs> oh man. And, um. And, and uh, you know, almost always, uh, instead of saying goodbye, you know, I will say, watch your proportions. <laughs> you know, you know, Eric Rhodes? I do. Not personally. No, but I know who he oh, is. okay. Yeah. One time he came over a few, few times, to, you know, asked me for help on a portrait. Mm-hmm. So, and then recently, you know, this realism live. Yeah. Thing that they had. I'm supposed to be doing that next month with him. Oh, yeah. So he, they gave me this life achievement award. That's amazing. You know, which I guess means, I guess it means you're getting old. Right? <laughs> no, it means you've done a lot of amazing things. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so I wrote to him something, and I think it was an answer to some, to some question, but I'm not sure. But I said, uh, "Hi, Eric," and I said, "Watch your proportions." So, you know, he sends me back a letter. He says, I just lost 40 pounds. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> I think it was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he was joking. He was oh, joking. Oh, I thought he was response. serious. I thought he took your <laughs> joke seriously. 
it's the same same dry humor. Yeah, I guess so. So all right, I so Mary so. Rich. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right. Maybe, Maybe so, you're right. Yeah, yeah, who knows? You know, we've hardly done any, you know, all these paintings I wrote down here, you hardly went through any of them. We're going to need to have you back, Max. You've got a long life, and uh, we'll have to break this down into a couple episodes. I'm not kidding. It would be great to talk some more. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. But, but uh, it, it's been a huge honor to have you. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you are an inspiration to myself and many artists have come after you. So it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, I want to well tell you, you guys, you guys from Utah, I have been very, very impressed by. Isn't it I weird that the Utah community? <laughs> what's know, what's in I the know. water here, right? I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's, maybe it's something in the air, but so many of you are I missed what you just said there, Max. So many of us are what? So many of you uh, paint realism well. I mean, not that your subject matter is that realistic. Right. But your form is realistic. Yeah. You know, and well painted. Yeah. I have a theory about that, and I'll just tell you what it is briefly. Back in the 70s and earlier, we had a man named Alvin Gittens, who was a British artist that University of Utah brought in to teach. And the University of Utah had this great realist department back when they didn't exist anywhere else. And uh, they ended up, or Alvin Gittens ended up bringing up artists like uh, Bill Whitaker, who's since passed, and uh, Randall Lake and a few others. And and then my generation was influenced by those people. So when realism in Utah was frowned, or when realism all over the country was frowned upon, we had this weird little thing going on back in the 60s and 70s, just kind of brewing. And I think that what we have now is a product of that. But that's hmm. just my theory. I don't know. But... You never know. Something. Yeah, I kind of thought that it might have had something to do with uh, the Mormon religion, where Some you wanted say work that. that was more realistic. Some people say that, and frankly, most of the really good ones are Mormon. Not all of them. There's some that aren't, mm -hmm. but um, but I don't know if that's it. I don't know if I don't know about that. I, I think uh, I asked you the same question. Why are all the good more well, good artists Jewish in New York? I don't know, but. Um, but who knows? Nah, there's plenty that are not. No, good. they're not. I know. But of your generation, though, all the ones that I can think of, the ones you named, are all Jewish. And, well, those uh, are the ones that I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, I don't think oh, it's I'm a Mormon new. thing. Yeah. But some people yeah. have said that there we do have this uh, we do have this culture of self sufficiency, and some people have said that's why. But I don't think so. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows why things are the mm -hmm. way they are? But. But anyway, it was a huge honor to have you on the show, and oh, I'm going to get you back. Terrific. I enjoyed the conversation. Me too. I really did, even though we didn't cover a lot of things that I thought we would. <laughs> well, we'll do it again, for sure. Thanks okay. again, Max. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.